0: Good morning! I ask that you would be kind to me. I do have uh, a little bit of something in my throat that uh, I hope I make it through uh, this service. First service, it started to wane uh, at the end, but we'll see how things go. Today we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study through the gospel account of Luke. And uh, last month we took our time looking at Jesus's Olivet Discourse and what Jesus had to say about the end times. The teaching that was given by Jesus uh, occurred on Tuesday late afternoon as he and his disciples departed from the temple area and made their way east through the Kidron Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives. We Read in the book of Matthew, as well as in the book of Mark, how Jesus spent Tuesday evening in the town of Bethany at the house of a leper by the name of Simon. It was there at the house of Simon, the leper, that a woman came to anoint the head of Jesus in preparation for his burial. When Judas saw this act of worship and sacrifice, he was indignant, and he wondered why the costly oil was not sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And uh, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was the one in charge of the money box, and he would take the money that was put into it, uh, and so he was a thief. And uh, that's why he made that big scene there. Well, Jesus rebuked Judas and the other disciples who criticized this woman's act of worship, and many believe that this was the tipping point for Judas. It was Tuesday, either Tuesday night or Wednesday that Judas went and spoke to the chief priest, agreed to hand over Jesus, asking them what they would give him in exchange for delivering Jesus over to them quietly. This interaction, I believe, uh, between the chief priest and Judas, I believe it took place either late Tuesday night or maybe even the next day, Wednesday. Our text this morning will pick up with the events that are traditionally associated with Thursday of the Passion Week. Tradition seems to suggest that Wednesday was a day of rest, where there's no recording of what Jesus and his disciples did. That is an interesting theory, one we won't have time to dive into today, but it is an interesting study. I would encourage you if you have time and it's something that interests you, looking at the final days of the Passion Week and how they all line up, there are some interesting theories out there. For us, we're going to read through Luke's account of what took place the day prior to Jesus's crucifixion, speaking specifically about the celebration of the Passover feast With his disciples. And I think this is very fitting for us that today we cover this portion of Scripture where Jesus partakes of the Passover with his disciples and institutes what we refer to as the Lord's Supper or communion. For today is the first Sunday of the month, and it is the time that we set aside as a church body to remember the Lord's Supper and to partake in the bread and the cup ourselves. And so, Our study this morning of the Passover feast will conclude with us following in the example that Jesus left for his disciples with us coming to the table in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23, and the title of our message is going to be The Passover Feast. If you haven't done so already, I'd like to ask you all to open up your Bibles and make your way to Luke's Gospel. I'm going to read through our text in my Bible. I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own. We all please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. Luke writes the following in chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. And so they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing? That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word that you've given to us, that we might know you, that we might grow Uh, in our understanding of who you are and uh, just all that you have done and all that you plan to do. Lord, I ask that you would give us just wisdom and understanding of your word that we might um, properly uh, interpret and come away with the uh, meaning of what this is all about. And Lord, that we would make application to our lives as well. And so Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us that you would lead us into all truth and that we would allow your word to do the work that you desire it to do in us today. We come yielded to you and to your word and to all that you'd have for us. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. Our text opens up talking about the Day of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. These were two very important Jewish festivals that traced their roots all the way back to the Jewish people's days of bondage in Egypt. The Passover was a feast day that was celebrated in commemoration of God's final plague against Egypt and the resulting freedom that they received. The details regarding the Passover come from Exodus chapter 12. If you want to read it later, you can. In Exodus 12, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he gives to them the details of how they were to establish and keep this feast. This feast was to be celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan at twilight, They were to take a lamb that had been selected four days prior on the 10th of Nisan, and they were to kill it at twilight on the 14th. And then after killing the lamb, they were to take some of the blood, and they were to put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they ate that Passover lamb. For on that night, the Lord would pass through the land of Egypt, and he would strike all the firstborn, executing his judgment upon them. But the blood would be a sign to the Lord, so that when he saw the blood upon the doorpost and the lintel of the house, he would pass over that house, and the plague would not enter into it. That night at midnight, the Lord passed through the land, destroying all the firstborn, including Pharaoh's firstborn. It was the tenth plague that finally made Pharaoh release the Israelites. And because the Israelites had to leave in such haste, they left without being able to properly prepare their dough. They were forced to bake and eat unleavened bread, bread without yeast in it. From this came a second feast tradition, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to Exodus chapter 12, this feast was to begin the day after the Passover commemoration on the 15th of Nisan and should be kept for seven days until the 21st day of the month. Together, these two feasts would encompass an eight-day commemoration of God's deliverance of the Israelites from the bondage of slavery. And although the Passover was just one day long, that was followed by the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, sometimes the eight-day commemoration was simply referred to as the Passover feast, and vice versa. It would sometimes be referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so the Passover feast was one of three Jewish festivals known as pilgrimage festivals. Okay, The Passover, along with the Feast of Weeks, uh, also known as Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles were the three Jewish feasts and festivals that required people to travel to Jerusalem in order to observe these special times. And so the city of Jerusalem would be filled with all sorts of pilgrims who had traveled from afar to partake in the Passover feast. Some scholars suggest that there could have been as many as a million people in the city during these days. And it is in this setting that we pick up our text. The city of Jerusalem is packed with people traveling from all over that have come to observe and partake in the Passover feast. Now, for our time together this morning, for those that like to outline and take notes, I decided to, d- decided to divide our text into four sections, each dealing with a different aspect of the Passover. Okay, so in verses 7 through 13, we're going to look at the preparation for the Passover. And then in verses 14 through 18, we're going to note the prophecy regarding the Passover. Then in verses 19 and 20, we will note Jesus and his disciples partaking of the Passover. And then we'll wrap up our text by looking at verses 21 through 23 and the proclamation during the Passover. So all these things correlated to the Passover feast. Let's jump into our first section dealing with the preparation for the Passover. Verses 7 through 13. Again, I'll read it to you. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There, make ready. Verse 13 says, So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. All right. In verse 7 when it says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed, it is referencing the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread as one and the same. Remember I said that sometimes they would do that. Uh, You know, if we look at this and took it literally and say, oh, the day of unleavened bread came, that's the 15th. And we'd be like, wait a second, they haven't killed the lamb yet. That was supposed to be on the 14th. No, they're just This is all-encompassing. They kind of lump these things in together. We know that the day of the Passover lamb was to be killed was the 14th of Nisan at twilight. And the day of unleavened bread began as soon as the sun set on the 14th. Remember that the Jews count their days from sunset to sunset. And so the 14th at twilight, right before it gets dark, okay, um they were to take their lamb to the temple. The priest would sacrifice it. They would return the lamb to them. They would go home. They would roast that lamb. And then when the sun set that day, it would start the 15th, which would be the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? And so it was at this time that Jesus sent Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover feast that they may partake of it. However... Peter and John didn't have any idea of where they would be able to do so. They asked Jesus, where do you want us to prepare, right? Remember, the city would be crowded with a bunch of travelers seeking a place to partake of the Passover meal for themselves. It would be challenging for Peter and John just to walk into the city that's filled with people and find a place for Jesus and at least 12 others, 13, to be able to sit down and actually partake of this meal together. And so their questioning makes sense, understanding the difficulty of the task based upon their need for a, a bigger place during a very busy season. I don't know about you guys. We have a big family. I don't know if you've ever tried to go to a, a restaurant on a really busy day with a large group of people. It's like impossible. You know, they're, basically they'll say, well, it's going to be a couple hours. And I think they just say that because they're basically wanting you to turn around and leave and not come back, right? And they're like, yeah. Uh, i used to work in the restaurant visit valentine's day mother's day those are like the two like busiest days of the year at restaurants right you go to the, a restaurant on mother's day and say i got a party of 14 or 13 they're like "Ha!" and they'll just see you out the door okay <laughs> that that's kind of the sense here right it, this is a the, one of the biggest days of the year the city's packed and he's sending them into the city hey go go prepare the meal <laughs> you know go get it ready Oh, where, where are we going to do that? <laughs> now, instead of telling the disciples where to go, Jesus tells them that as they enter the city, a man will meet them who's carrying a pitcher of water and that they were to follow him into the house that he enters into. Then they were tell, to tell the master of the house, "'The teacher says to you, "'Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with Passover with my disciples?' Jesus said that the master of the house would then show them a large furnished upper room where they would be able to make ready the Passover meal. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this portion of Scripture, there seems to be an element of secrecy going on here. Jesus is scarce with the information, and I think there could be a good explanation for this. We're not told this within Scripture, so it is a bit of speculation. But I wonder if Jesus purposefully withheld the information, the exact location, because he needed to make sure Judas didn't move too soon. Judas has been looking for and waiting for an opportunity to betray Jesus, and perhaps Jesus kept the location of where they were going to partake of the Passover unknown so that Judas wouldn't try to leak that information to the religious leaders and come arrest Jesus during the Passover meal, preventing him from doing all that he did on this night with his disciples. Now, it's not recorded here in in the Gospel of Luke for some reason. It's not recorded in Matthew or Mark as well. But a number of important things took place this night. John's Gospel uses five whole chapters to detail all that took place this night while they were there in that upper room. The washing of the disciples' feet took place. An incredibly important teaching was given by Jesus called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus comforted his disciples and he spoke about the relationships that they had with him and about their relationships that they had with each other. He spoke to them of the importance of his departure so that the helper could be sent. He told them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what they could anticipate when he comes. It's an incredibly rich teaching very intimate and very personal as the Lord shares his heart for his disciples. And then he prays for himself and he prays for his disciples. And ultimately he prays for all believers. I would in fact encourage you to perhaps read through John's gospel during the coming week, just to get a feel for the entirety of what took place this night. The details of what took place in this upper room, they're found in John chapters 13 through 17. Okay. And so if you don't have a a reading plan already, you might want to check out those chapters this week just to kind of get an overall sense of everything that happened that night because Luke doesn't tell us all these details. He doesn't give any of those. Uh, we just get the disciples uh, participating in the Lord's Supper and then basically Judas's betrayal. We miss out on John 13 through 17 and everything that took place there. So just to get an overall sense of what's going on, you could read that. I suggest to you that perhaps that is why Jesus had to be hush hush about the location where he didn't say oh yeah I've already set it all up go talk to this guy this is where it's at on the corner of whatever and whatever you know he doesn't tell him that he says you know very discreet because he needed to be so because of Judas Judas was looking for an opportunity to betray him and he knew he had some important things he wanted to do without being interrupted by a mob of people coming to arrest him you know as we read the instructions given by Jesus to Peter and John, it reminds me of, just, uh, of what just took place a few days prior, when Jesus first entered the city on the back of a donkey. Remember how Jesus sent a few of his disciples into the city ahead of him in order to fetch a colt on which no one had ever sat before and to bring it to him? Remember Jesus gave his disciples this cool saying to use in case anyone stopped them and asked about why they were taking the colt. They were to say, because the Lord has need of it. And then, basically, they would immediately send the colt along with him. And it was just this picture of how God had worked out. Jesus had already made all the arrangements. He had worked out everything, unbeknownst to the disciples. Everything was in place. Jesus had worked it all out, all the -the behind-the-scenes details. And it appears that he's done the same here in this situation as well. You know, Jesus still operates the same today. He's constantly working behind the scenes. He is in control of life's situations. He's at work behind the scenes, unbeknownst to us. He's orchestrating events in our life that He's going to use for our growth and for our maturity, that we might grow closer to Him and be used by Him to the furtherance of His kingdom and His glory. You know, sometimes we're like the disciples here who are the recipients of some of His behind the scenes planning while at other times we are more like this unnamed man carrying the pitcher of water. We're the agents that he uses to work behind the scenes to be a blessing for others. And whether you are the recipient or the agent, I hope we can take comfort in knowing that God is at work behind the scenes of our lives. He is at work in all the details of our lives. Remember that there is no such thing as coincidence. That is God's hand orchestrating the events of our life to bring about the work He desires to do in us and through us. And so take comfort in knowing that He is involved in all the details of what's going on. Verse 13 tells us, And so they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. It worked out just as Jesus said it would. This shouldn't come as a shock to any of us. God is sovereign, and his word goes forth, and it will accomplish all that it is set out to do. It will not return to him void. Well... Let's go ahead and take a look at our next section dealing with the prophecy regarding the Passover. Read with me verses 14 through 18. It says, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. We'll stop right there. Our text fast forwards to the hour where Jesus sat down with the 12 apostles in order to partake of the Passover feast. Peter and John have successfully set up all that was needed for the Passover meal. And Jesus begins to tell the disciples how much he has longed to partake of of this meal with them. He states with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. In verse 18, he said, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says that the Passover will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this reveals to us that there is more to the Passover feast than simply looking back and remembering God's deliverance from bondage while they were in Egypt. You see, there is a greater, ultimate significance that we must know and understand when it comes to the Passover feast. While Passover commemorated a past event, the escape of Egypt, uh, excuse me, the escape of Israel from Egypt, when the blood of the Lamb was painted on the door frames, it also foreshadowed Jesus' work upon the cross and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Let me explain. Just as the blood of the spotless lamb had to be spilled and applied to the entrance of their homes in order for death to pass over the Jews, so too the blood of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, must be spilled and applied to our hearts in order for death to pass over us and grant us eternal life with God in heaven. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians how Jesus Christ is indeed our Passover, okay, who was crucified for us. Jesus is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist spoke of Jesus, proclaiming, Behold, the lamb of God who take away, takes away the sin of the world. In fact, there are so many things about the Passover meal that point to Jesus Christ, not just the lamb. The traditional dinner that Jews partake of as part of their Passover celebration is called the Seder. The Hebrew word Seder means order. The Passover meal has a specific order in which food is eaten, wine is drunk, prayers are recited, and songs are sung. The meal would begin with a blessing, and then the partaking of the first cup of wine. Then the food would be brought out, and the youngest son would ask, why this night was so special? And the father would then answer by telling the account of the exodus, and he would point to each uh, of the food items on the table, and he would explain their symbolic significance. For instance, he would point to the bitter herbs, and he would explain how they they symbolize the bitterness of bondage and slavery. The vegetables that were dipped in salt water was to remind them of the tears that were shed during their bondage. The keraset to remind them of the mortar used in constructing buildings while slaves. This would be followed by praise to God for past and future redemption, and then they would partake of the second cup of wine. And after the second cup, they would bless the bread and they would break it and then distribute it around the table so it could be eaten with the bitter herbs and the carousel. This would be followed by the eating of the meal, which was always roasted lamb that had been uh, sacrificed at the temple. At the end of the meal, the father would bless a third cup of wine, which would be followed by more singing. And then the fourth and final cup of wine would conclude the meal. That's a, there's a, A lot more details to it. That's a vague overview of the Seder dinner. Many of these traditions within the Seder, they foreshadow Christ. There are many elements of the Seder that point to Jesus, and time will not allow us to look at them all this morning. We'll note a few of them a little bit later, but there are many. The drinking of the wine, the names of the different cups, and how they are associated with God's promises, the unleavened bread, and the breaking of it, and the hiding away of part of it to be found later on, all of those things and more pointed to Jesus Christ and the work that he would fulfill on behalf of us. And so this meal was done to look back and remember, but it was also looking forward prophetically. Prophetically to the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the establishment of his kingdom. And that's why Jesus proclaims that he will not partake of this meal again until the coming of his kingdom. You see, there will come a day where we will join with all the other saints and we will sit down and enjoy this meal together with the Lord and we will understand how all the different elements of the Passover were simply foreshadows of the work Jesus Christ would do for us. And so if you haven't partaken of a Seder before, you will eventually, okay? And it will be an amazing meal as we see how all of these things point to Jesus Christ and the work that he has done for us. Well, let's continue on. We'll look at our next section, dealing with the actual partaking of the Passover in verses 19 and 20. Read it with me. It says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. We'll stop right there. Jesus here institutes what's known as the Lord's Supper, or what we commonly refer to as communion. Uh, Other traditions uh, refer to it as the Eucharist. Okay, There's lots of different names that are used uh, for this. It's very significant that Jesus institutes this sacrament during the Passover meal. The Passover meal was meant to remind them of their deliverance from slavery and the freedom they received by the hand of the Lord. And likewise, the Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of our own deliverance, our own redemption from slavery and the freedom that we received by the Lord. The scriptures teach us that we were slaves to sin, but that we were set free from sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Here in verse 19, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, declaring, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It is important that we remember what kind of bread that this was. This was unleavened bread, bread without yeast in it. Leaven is a picture, okay, it is a a biblical type of sin, It slowly spreads and permeates itself throughout the whole lump until it is completely taken over. And this is what sin will do in our lives. It will spread and take over our entire lives if we don't allow Christ to remove the leaven from our hearts and our minds. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 declares, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Jesus' body was without sin, As Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples, it becomes a beautiful picture of his body. And that is why he says in Mark's gospel, take, eat, this is my body. Now, we don't take this to be literal, that his body actually became bread. That's something called the transubstantiation a prominent teaching within the Roman Catholic Church. We don't believe that. Uh, We believe that Jesus was identifying his body with this broken bread. okay? Just as it was without yeast, without sin, so too was his body. 1 John 3, 5 declares, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 teaches us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just as the unleavened bread was broken, so too would Jesus' body become broken for us. The unleavened bread, it's referred to as the matzah bread, the matzah bread used in the Passover meal was pierced and striped, and so too his body was pierced and striped for us. Isaiah 53 declares, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus' body was pierced when he was nailed to the Roman cross. He pierced with nails that held his body to the cross, pierced in the side as his body was given as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, the bread is a picture of his sinless perfection. His sinless body, blessed, broken, and given for us. Jesus then took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. Now, as I mentioned uh, in my overview of the Seder, there are four cups involved in the Passover meal, symbolizing the four-part promise of redemption that's found in the book of Exodus. It reads in Exodus chapter six, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You see, God promised four things. He said, I will bring you out I will rescue you, I will redeem you, and I will take you as my people. Tied to each of these promises is a cup of wine that is part of the Seder meal. The Cup of sanctification is the first one connected to the promise of God to bring them out from bondage. The cup of deliverance is the second cup. It's connected to the promise of rescue God gave them. The third cup is the cup of redemption. It's tied to the promise of God to redeem them. And the fourth and final cup is the cup of praise associated with the promise of God to take the Jews as his own people. The cup of sanctification that's used to kick off the Passover with a blessing is more than likely the cup that Jesus referred to earlier in our text back in verse 17. But here in verse 20, it's believed that Jesus is partaking of the third cup, the cup of redemption, as he speaks of a new covenant in his blood. We know it is the third cup because Luke tells us that this cup was taken after supper, which was when the third cup was to be taken in the Seder meal. This points to the fact that the new covenant is a promise of Christ to redeem us through his shed blood. The word redeem means to deliver by paying a price. Jesus paid the price for our sins with his blood thereby redeeming us from death and the payment required because of our sin. And here we have another wonderful picture that is presented for us. The cup of redemption becomes a picture of Christ's blood where we find redemption for our souls. Jesus Christ redeems us with his shed blood. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that our redemption is through the blood of of Jesus Christ. Romans teaches us that we have been justified by his blood and saved from wrath through him. Paul teaches us in Ephesians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Jesus establishes a new covenant here. He transforms the old covenant into a new covenant. He transformed the Passover meal into the supper's Lord's Supper as something we were to do in remembrance of what he did for us, just like the Passover was done in remembrance of what he did for the Israelites. Interestingly enough, we don't talk about this very often, but both the Old and the New Covenant are both blood covenants. We often refer to the New Covenant as a covenant of grace, but it's actually a covenant of blood. Both are covenants of blood. Under the Old Covenant, the blood of sacrifices was used to cover sin. And the byproduct of the Old Covenant was the law. And under the New Covenant, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that's used to not just cover sin, but to completely remove sin. And the byproduct of the New Covenant is grace. Jesus needed to do away with the Old Covenant because it was not sufficient to take away our sins. The writer of Hebrews attests, he says, "...it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The priests were required to stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over and over again, which could never ever take away sins." The most they could do is simply cover up, but then you, you sin again. Then you need to make another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice because those sacrifices could not remove sin. But Jesus, in Hebrews ten twelve, it tells us, after he has offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Lord declares their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Through Jesus' one sacrifice upon the cross, He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Our sins are removed. They are remembered no more. And there no longer stands a need for the continuation of the old covenant sacrifices. We don't need to keep on going daily weekly, monthly, yearly, to the temple, laying our hands upon an animal sacrifice that their blood would be shed in our place. We don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Right? Our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the lever not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. How wonderful it is that we are no longer under the insufficient old covenant that was incapable of removing our sin and it bound us to a law that none of us could ever keep. Today we have made available to us a new covenant, one founded in the blood of Jesus Christ, His perfect sacrifice, completely sufficient, to not just cover sin, but to remove sin and to forgive all sin for those who choose to place their hope and faith in him. And my hope and my prayer is that we all have done so, okay? That we have understood our own inadequacies, our own insufficiencies, and we've placed our hope and our faith in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross for us. That is our only hope. Well, Let's take a look at our final section as we look to wrap this study up. Take a look at verses 21 through 23 as we note Jesus' proclamation during the Passover. Okay, Read along in your Bible as I read from mine, 21 through 23. It says, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Jesus, to the shock and dismay of his disciples, he proclaims that one of the 12 disciples is going to betray him, that his betrayer was with him at the table. Now for us, this doesn't come as a shock. For one, we've already read about how Judas was plotting to betray him just last week. And two, most of us, most of us have already read the gospel accounts before, and we are well aware of the details. Like, we know that Judas is the bad guy. He's the betrayer. Right? But we need to realize the magnitude of the situation and the weight of Jesus' words to his disciples here. How would we respond if we were one of those disciples? How would we respond if we didn't know already about the behind-the-scenes plotting that Judas was been, has been up to, and we weren't familiar with the whole story already? How would we re- perceive this proclamation by Jesus that one of his 12 disciples was going to betray him? Unbelievable. Okay? It would have been very alarming to hear that one of the 12 disciples who had been following Jesus and serving alongside Jesus for the last two to three years of public ministry was all of a sudden just going to betray him. Jesus declared that this betrayal that was coming had been determined, meaning it was part of God's plan. But he also pronounces woe upon that man who betrays the Son of Man. Verse 22 presents two different points of view, the human and the divine. The divine point of view depicts this event as all part of God's plan from the beginning. It was determined that it would happen this way. This is merely a fulfillment of God's prophecy regarding the Messiah and his ministry, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 8 prophesied that he would be cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of God's people he was stricken. Daniel 9:26 as well tells of how the messiah shall be cut off. Zechariah prophesied that the shepherd would be struck and that the sheep would be scattered. Zechariah 13:7. All of this is happening to fulfill the scriptures to fulfill God's plan. But from the human point of view we still see that Judas is held responsible for his actions. Even though it was determined ahead of time to happen this way, and even though this was part of God's plan, Judas would still have to answer for his betrayal of Jesus Christ. He doesn't get a free pass simply because it was part of God's plan that Jesus be betrayed, right? It's not like Judas is like, well, I'll be the one to do that for you, God. I know it was written, so I'll be... No, 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 okay? In this verse we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together. They are not in conflict, but rather they are portrayed as working together to fulfill God's will, God's plan. God works sovereignly, but we are given a choice. Judas was given a choice and he chose to betray Christ and to reject Him. And we all have a choice to make. And the choice that we make will determine where we will spend the rest of eternity. Life here on earth is short. Our mortal bodies will only last us a short time. James chapter 4 tells us that our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. These tents, these bodies of ours, they are wearing down, they're breaking down, some faster than others, okay? My voice is going. Uh, But we're all wearing away, Though our bodies are wearing away, our soul is eternal. It will last forever. Where will you spend eternity? If you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God says you're going to spend eternity in hell, a place created for the devil and his angels. He allows us the freedom to make that choice. He does not send anyone anywhere. We go to heaven or hell based upon our own choices. If we choose to surrender ourselves to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, we will be saved and we will spend eternity in heaven. If we choose instead to reject Christ and enter into eternity on our own, we will spend eternity in hell. The choice is ours. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to make the choice to give your life to Jesus Christ and to place your faith in Him and His completed work, you have decided to spend eternity in hell. And I beg of you, please change your mind. Please repent and believe upon the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It is the most important choice you will ever make. Do not delay. Do not miss out on the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ offers to you. One last thing to note before we transition here to our time of communion and observing the Lord's Supper. I think it's worth noting that the disciples all seemed unsure of who it would be that would betray him. Oftentimes I think we picture Judas in our own mind as some, you know, dirty, rotten scoundrel. Like every time we read Judas, we're like, oh, that guy, you know. And we have that in our in our own eyes, right? But to the rest of the disciples, he didn't stand out as an obvious suspect of betrayal. Right? The disciples weren't like, oh, it's got to be Judas, right? There's someone going to betray you. Everybody knows that's Judas. No, that wasn't it at all. The disciples weren't like that. Judas wasn't seen in any sort of negative light. If anything, I think you can make a case that he was seen as one responsible and one that was trustworthy for he was the one that was placed in charge of holding the money box amongst all the other disciples who was given that responsibility. Judas, right? Each of the disciples began to question among themselves, which of them would do this horrible thing? In Mark's gospel, we're told that the disciples all started to ask Jesus one by one, is it I? They all began to ask and to question their own heart, their own depravity. Could could it be me? Could, Could I be the one that would betray you, Lord? And I think there's a valuable lesson for us to learn here about the depravity of our own hearts and our need to allow the Lord to search them out. Jeremiah says that each of our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And he asks, who can know it? You know, I think we can sometimes think of ourselves as having arrived and we think we've got it all together, how we'll never do certain things, that we are beyond certain sins because we've just, you know, we've got it figured all out. And we begin to think too highly of ourselves. We become self-righteous. We become high and mighty. We think we've got it all figured out. But we need to routinely examine ourselves. Examine our deceitful and wicked hearts. We need to ask God to search our hearts and to reveal to us any areas where we have fallen short. Because it is pride that leads us to thinking that we'd never do something or that we are beyond something, that we'd never fall in certain areas. And you know what the scripture says about pride and the fall, right? Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. These disciples, they came in humility, recognizing their own depravity and questioning themselves and asking the Lord, is it I? We need to have that same type of humility in our own lives as well. We need to make sure that we examine our hearts and not allow any pride to well up in us thinking that we are better than others or that we would never fall where others have. We need to make sure that we keep our guard up. The enemy would love nothing more than to lull us into a false sense of security in certain areas of our life just so he can attack when our guard is down because we think we've got it all together. And this morning, you guys, we have a wonderful opportunity to allow the Lord to search us and to reflect upon our walk with Him. Communion. Communion is about remembering what Christ did for us, but it is also a time about reflecting on our own relationship with Him. Paul, in fact, instructed the Corinthians to let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, before we partake of the bread and the cup, Paul instructs the church in Corinth, he instructs us Yeah, we need to remember what Christ did for us, but we also are instructed to examine ourselves, to to search our hearts, and to allow the Lord to highlight any areas that need attention. And you guys, as we partake of communion, and and as He speaks to us and He shows us certain things, let's be faithful to confess those things and to repent of those things prior to partaking of the bread and the cup. I, I want you to take this time to remember what Christ did for you. And I want you to reflect upon your own walk with the Lord. Allow Him to search your hearts. And as He is faithful to speak, I pray you would be faithful to respond. We know where this is supposed to be. We know what it reminds us of. So let's just do it. Let's wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Let's examine our hearts. Allow God just to search our hearts. Confess those things that need to be confessed. Spend some time remembering it's the sacrifice he gave for you, his broken body for you, his blood shed for you. That new covenant that we have, grace that's resulted in it. Be reminded of all those things and allow that just to overwhelm yourself and, and to bless you as you wait upon him. God bless you guys. Let's worship the Lord.